Choose Linux, episode 30, for March 5th, 2020. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Joe. I'm Drew. And I'm Mel. And here we are for episode 30. And this time we're going to revisit some of the projects we've covered before and talk about what we're still using. So L, one that you were very impressed with was Cubes OS. And I think you're still using that one, aren't you? I'm trying. The biggest issue with Cubes is really how many resources it needs to be effective. Um, as we covered before, it really requires you to be able to spin up VMs. And oh, it's just so difficult when your RAM is limited at how quick those VMs are going to run. And I, one of those people, I've gotten spoiled with containers and just the distro hopping that we do. I don't want to wait 30 to 40 seconds every time I want a VM. And, and sometimes it is longer. But I do like what it has to offer. Uh, I love the security behind it. I know a lot of people get into the, well, you can still be hacked. Of course you can. But when I'm going to conferences and I have random people that I've met all of 30 seconds to maybe five minutes sending me documentation, sending me, you know, just emails, there's a layer of fear there that I just like, okay, I'm going to open this up. Cubes is going to actually just make an image out of it. It's not going to actually open the real file. And I don't have to worry as much. It, I don't know. I've really been happy with the comfort that it offers. But ideally, you need a desktop, don't you, with a hugely powerful CPU with loads of cores and like 32 gigs plus of RAM. I, I wish. Yeah. I'm running it on a box right now that had four and I've run it on a box that had eight. And I'm like, no, like even 16, I think would be a stretch if you want it to function just like a regular laptop with a regular system, just have the 32 gigs. That's quite a lot of resources that you'd have to dedicate there. That's, uh, yeah, not everybody's going to have that. I mean, maybe it's kind of like a gamer uh, mindset. You know, you always want the best. You want the best graphics card. I mean, that's like my dream machine, right, is something where I don't have to worry about it. Everything just works magically. But I think I could get by with 16 gigs and still be happy. I mean, we can all dream about that perfect box. <laughs> well, sure. And I'm wondering, with your conference going, is Tails maybe the better solution for that kind of situation? Yes and no. I mean, I do like that, that Tails is within the USB. Um, and I do like that when I'm at different conferences, I have had the awkward moment of not having charged my laptop or we've done a distro hop where I close the lid on the laptop and it didn't actually go to sleep. So I go and the computer's dead. Having to ask a friend for a laptop is one of the most awkward experiences you will ever be in. So to be able to say, hey, don't worry, I'm not going to touch any of your stuff. I won't, I'm, I'm just going to use this USB has been good. But I, I just don't use it every single day as a daily driver. It just has not worked out for me in that sense. Um, I also love that Cubes has, you know, other options where I can turn off networking. Like I am going to work on something and I, you know, I'm doing a capture the flag or I'm trying to analyze code and I don't want it speaking to the outside world. I can create that VM that is completely isolated with a few clicks of a button. It's something that's completely native. Well, virtualization is something that we talked about at length with Boxes and Vert Manager and KVM. Is that not a route that you could go on a standard distro then, where you could just spin up a virtual machine and not give it network access, for example? This Oh, it's funny. Yes and no. I hate that answer, but it's true. Yes, I could do that. 100% I could. Will I? Probably not. Do you know how long that takes to spin up a VM like fresh every single time? Whereas with Cubes, it's 
a button and the VM is up and there's already a template for it that I didn't write. It's in the system. So at most, I'm waiting 40 seconds, which I've never been able to spin up a VM from bottom up in 40 seconds. Yeah, I mean, unless you have these VMs kind of preset and you're copying the the image file and spinning up a new instance of that image file, it's Cubes having all of it baked right in. That is definitely a winner. Yeah, I suppose Cubes automates a lot of what you would have to do manually. And that's where the time saving is. One of the things I've enjoyed is a lot of stuff is native. Like they have They've used the system themselves. Sometimes, this is going to sound so rude, but it's true. I feel that developers write an operating system and then they don't use it. Like There are just little things and I'm like, what is going on here? Whereas Cube, something as simple as copying and pasting is kind of built into the OS. Like I can copy something out of a VM. It goes into a text document that I can then copy from and move somewhere else. So there's kind of just an extrapolated layer that I can use to ensure that I am copying and pasting the right thing. Because how many times have we copied and pasted our password into the wrong window? I've never done that. I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So it sounds like it is pretty much a permanent fixture then, Cubes, for you. Yeah, and it's not just the security option. It... I think I said this before when we reviewed it. It really pushes you to learn Linux on another level and not just the operating system, the actual command line, networking, how things are set up. I I think it's a great kind of learning lab for me. Well, I mentioned virtualization and the episode we did about that has definitely changed the way I try out distros in a VM because I have just not used VirtualBox at all since we did that. I've been perfectly happy with Vert Manager and Boxes it really has just changed everything for me. And as I'm sure you would suspect, I never really stopped using Vert Manager. Uh, it's a daily fixture in my life. <laughs> and uh, I virtualize all the things whenever possible. I have to admit that that episode and getting to play with Virtual Manager did change my view on it a bit. I still default to boxes just because I think it's muscle memory at this point. However, when I've run into a few issues specifically with networking, copying a pasta, just things that need additional resources, I do hop into virtual manager and just see if it works out of the box. And I've been pleasantly surprised with my experience. Well, to be fair, I think boxes is a perfectly acceptable way to go about it. The only real reason you might need Vert Manager is if you've got some very specific use cases that you need to tend to, or you need to adjust the underlying hardware or something like that. But if you're just trying to spin up a single distro and try it out, Boxes really is very sleek and does 99% of what you might need it to do. Yeah, but if you want to feel at home on XFCE and have it look a bit more old school, then Vert Manager is the way to go. <laughs> Something I remember you being very impressed with, Drew, was Regolith, which is a very easy way to use i3 on top of Ubuntu. Yeah, absolutely. And I continued using Regolith for probably a month after we did that hop. And I eventually did go back to GNOME for a little while, but honestly, I went back to Regolith about a month ago and have been doing the tiling thing since then. It's a really great system, and it's only gotten better since we last reviewed it. Uh, They have absolutely put a lot of love into the whole thing, and it's gotten to the point where it is very slick, and a lot of the little paper cuts that we had when we tried it out have been smoothed over, and it's in a really great shape now. 
I can still highly recommend it for anybody who is curious about any of the tiling window managers out there. If you want to give one a shot, Regolith is absolutely hands down the way to get your feet wet. And you even tried to get Chris into that. Yeah, we had a little live stream and he was getting into it. I don't think he's going to be switching to it anytime soon, but he certainly had a lot of fun with it and could see where the value is. Well, one Android app that we talked about was NewPipe, and I've been using that basically every day since we talked about it. Have either of you stuck with it? I have not, but my kids have. I have to admit that maybe we use it a bit more than we should, but it's great for car trips, especially when I don't want them burning through their data. They It gives them a break from things like Netflix or Hulu that they've downloaded because, honestly, they're at the point now where they enjoy live streamers and, I don't know, just stuff on YouTube that I, I'm too old to watch a bit more than they do movies. So that's been a great find for our family. Yeah, I still use it too. I tend to default to that instead of the official YouTube app whenever I can. Though every now and then I do use the YouTube app if I need to like check comments and leave a comment or something like that, just because I don't actually want to sign in in NewPipe. But other than that, if I'm just watching stuff, yeah, it's my go-to. I find that when I'm watching videos in the official YouTube app, I find myself swiping up on the left and right of the screen, trying to make the brightness go up and the volume. And then I remember, (laughs) oh, no, no, you can't do that in this app, uh, which is very annoying. But I I still love it. I love the fact that I can background listen to stuff. I, I do that with music all the time. I'm sure that is against the YouTube terms of service and I should be paying for YouTube music or whatever. But this is a free and open source app. What are you going to do? I have had a couple of problems with it, though. The main one is that whenever I open a video, it takes ages to start unless I drop the quality because you can drop the quality from 1080p down to 720 or whatever. And I find that that makes it start instantly. But then occasionally, if you want that higher quality, it can get a little bit annoying. Otherwise, you just have to wait. And another is that YouTube keeps changing things and breaking things. So you need to keep it updated. I installed it from F-Droid and at the time, I recommended that that was how people do it. But it doesn't get updated in F-Droid as quickly as just on GitHub where you can download the APK. And it was broken for a few days and I was starting to get frustrated. I was checking F-Droid for updates. Nothing was happening. So I was like, right, let me investigate this. Found the GitHub, found the APK, installed that. It did wipe all of my settings, which was a little bit annoying. I had uh, none of my subscriptions anymore. But as soon as I sorted that back out, it's pretty easy to import your subscriptions from the YouTube app. I was up and going again, and now I get these prompts every now and then when I open new pipe, and it says a new version is available, and I click on that, and then nothing happens. <laughs> so there's a bit of a bug there, but I know that I have to then go to GitHub and get the APK and install it manually. I'm going to ask a question, and I promise it's not loaded just based on what you just said. You said that YouTube kind of keeps changing things and it ends up breaking. Is that done really to keep apps from this from being successful? No, I think it is in spite of apps like this, is that they don't care. They make changes to the APIs and everything, and they know that they're in control of all the official apps. And I don't think it's deliberately to make unofficial apps like NewPipe not work. It's just that they're not going to test them. They're not going to put any resources in. And if they break, they break, so be it. But this is definitely hanging around long term for me. It's just so good being able to download videos, being able to background watch stuff, and the the familiar slide up and down for volume and brightness, like I talked about, it's just amazing. I can't recommend it enough, especially on a tablet if you watch a lot of YouTube on there. 
What I've been really surprised with is how easy it works on when I say old hardware for phones, um, you know, my daughter is young. She's going to lose her phone. She's going to break it. So she has a hand-me-down phone that was a hand-me-down from a hand-me-down. And it still has worked with absolutely no issues. Oh, that's good to hear because my phone and tablet are getting a little bit old now, but um, they're still relatively powerful. But uh, maybe I'll have to dig out some old devices. I've got a really old Nexus 9 that's very slow. Maybe that could be my uh, new pipe device. So you were saying that you were pulling the APKs down from Git. Do you actually prefer that over using the copy that's in F-Droid, or is it just that it's newer and fixes the bugs when you can't wait a day for them to release it? Well, it's more than a day, unfortunately, for F-Droid. So, yeah, it's just a case of it being newer and just getting impatient. If it's not working, then I just have to go and get the, the newer APK. Yeah, see, I just default over to YouTube until new pipe is fixed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but then I like the features, so yeah, it gets annoying. Well, something that I keep hearing more and more about is Hugo. It seems to be very popular. This is the static website generator. So instead of having to mess around with PHP and databases and everything, this creates just static HTML for you. And L, you were getting really into this. Have you continued with it? I am completely in love with Hugo and how easy it is to use. I know that we went back and forth on that episode and people might want to go back and listen to it because it was the first one where you and I just disagreed flat out on how easy it was to use. I can't tell you if it's because I've become more experienced in it or the platform itself has become easier, but right now it's so easy to pull these templates down. I'm having absolutely no problem with them not working. I can do all of my development locally And, you know, you type in Hugo server and it's running on, you know, just any browser that you're using. You can look to see how things laid out. The code is, I mean, just so simple to read. It's literally like, here, insert image here. And you put in where the image is. Like, I don't know. It's so intuitive for me. And then I just do a Git push because I'm running it through GitLab. And my site is up and running for the world. It's been the easiest way that I've ever found. And mind you, I used to be a server admin, so I did a lot of WordPress, and they don't even compare to one another. See, and when we were checking it out, it reminded me a lot of Ghost, but like without the platform behind it, so that you could set up these static pages in sort of the Ghost format. And I thought it was super cool, but I never do really any web publishing, so I haven't had a chance to use it since we last talked about it. It's been really helpful for me with the other side of the job that I do with the community building and the community outreach, because somebody will ask me for a resource or somebody will be like, you know, hey, can I get a copy of this? And I can just do a quick edit to my file and push it up and it's there for them. I don't have to worry about, oh, give me your email address. How do I reach you? Reach me. It's oh, it's already on my site. Oh, that's really cool. I would like to say that I am going to use Hugo, but I'm just so familiar with WordPress at this point and my requirements for the various sites that I manage are pretty basic. And yes, the attack surface would be lower, but WordPress auto-updates now and the server auto-updates. So I I would like to do it, but I'm just too familiar with WordPress to move on from it, I think. Well, you are a big fan of WYSIWYG, so that does make sense to me. Yeah, I like the old WordPress editor. Obviously, I don't like the new one. 
For those new kids in the class, what is WYSIWYG? What you see is what you get. (laughs) So instead of like coding in Markdown or HTML or something like that, you write it like a, like a, almost like a Word document. And then it just kind of translates everything for you from rich text into a web page. Yeah. And if you want to put in a link, you just select the text, control K paste the link in, job done. I just find it much easier than writing Markdown, which I can kind of do, but I don't know. I just just prefer that WYSIWYG way. Markdown all day, every day. (laughs) I want to go on the record here that I find that hilarious since you're the one that gives me the hardest time about using the GUI for things. (laughs) No, I I never say that. I would never give someone a hard time for using a GUI. I would just say that often it's quicker to not use a GUI. Like if you want to install software, it's usually much quicker to use the command line, and that's why I do it. But no, I'm never going to criticize the way another person uses a computer. I'll always just offer my wisdom and let them make up their own mind. I think people should go back and listen to previous episodes. And then what's our contact info? Because I want to hear from them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, choose linux.show slash contact and prove me wrong. Go on then. (laughs) So something that we covered a fair while ago was Endeavor OS. This is a really easy way to install Arch. And it kind of came out of the ashes of Antergos. They are different, but it does serve the same purpose. It's a very easy way to install Arch. I love Manjaro. Don't get me wrong. That is a great distro, but it is nice to have two options. And Endeavor OS has improved markedly since we first looked at it. When we looked at it, it was quite early on, whereas now it's matured. And as well as the amazing XFCE desktop, if you connect to the network when you install it, you've got a choice of... I think Cinnamon, Gnome, Plasma, and some others. And it really has gone from strength to strength. I haven't done much with Endeavor OS since we last looked at it, but I have been keeping an eye on it. And you're right, it really has improved. And it really is just the easiest way to get an Archbox spun up. I don't need one very often, but every now and then... It helps. And I certainly don't want to go through the whole CLI configuration of an Arch box every single time. So having a good GUI installer is very, very welcome. They've even got a different default wallpaper for each desktop that you install. And so when you first boot into it, it asks you, do you want to change to that? And so suddenly you get the Plasma one or the Gnome one and each one seems to be really nicely designed and like they've taken real care with it. So this this is really my go-to now for a quick Arch install. Well, the quality of the wallpaper is quite clearly <laughs> the most important part of a distro, in my opinion. Well, you say that jokingly, right? But it does indicate that they care. You know, it, if they just stuck some plain old black one that I'm going to end up with once I change it, then it feels like they're not making an effort and maybe that's indicative of other areas of the distro that they haven't made an effort with. No, you're absolutely right about that. And I was being facetious, but the level of polish that can go into a distro is really indicative of the experience that you're going to get. And having a nice background is part of that for sure. Okay, I'm gonna let you guys in on a little secret and it stays between us and just our listeners. So it's going nowhere else. This is the OS that I jump to when I have to front a little bit because I go to conferences where I'm, you know, hey, real Linux admins use Arch. You know, if you really want to be a true user, you use Arch. 
this is the easiest way to spin it up. And I'll do it with a known background. So, you know, when I put it up on the slides, it's the first thing they see. It says Endeavor OS right on the top. And I'm like, yeah, I'm using Arch too. Just was a really simple install. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's what it's for, right? It's just not going through the hassle of an Arch install. We can all do it, but it just takes time. Whereas Endeavor OS just makes it so easy. Well, and it, there's also the question of, does a real sysadmin run Arch or does a real sysadmin say, you know what, I ran Arch for 10 years and I'm sick of it? We're lazy, that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they use Fedora or Ubuntu LTS or PopOS or something. Pretty much, yeah. I'm going to take this sound clip and just play it every time. Like, it's going to be on my phone and be like, look what Joe said. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, another distro beginning with E is Endless OS. <laughs> And that was one that you were quite impressed with, Elle, at least for your kids. I was. And I had that just horrible little laptop that I've talked about so much. And that laptop is, okay, it's not functional for me, but it's really functional for them at this point. It's been something that, you know, when people come over, maybe non-technical people, and they're like, hey, can I borrow your computer to check my email, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to hand them my work laptop. I'm honestly not going to hand them my personal laptop, but I'll hand them Endless OS because there's only so much they can do with it. It's also something that I've let my kids kind of have free reign on downloading things because I, I trust what's available in the store, which is really strange thing to say, but they've had a blast and they've yet to break it. You know, with all the Linux phones coming out, I would love to see this in a form factor that could be put on a phone. Like, how cool would that be? It already is taking a lot of design cues from things like Android. So why not make it into a proper tablet or phone OS too? It's something that I really wish I, I don't want to say I knew more about, but was more comfortable with going to my kids' school and talking to them about it because they replace hardware so easily that this would be a great resource. I mean, think about it. It's got Wikipedia articles already on it. It's got kid-friendly games. It's got tools that teach them how to do HTML and basic coding. And it's a great educational resource that I wish more people would take advantage of. Yeah, and instead of having to throw hardware away and upgrade to the latest version of Windows, they could potentially just repurpose old hardware because... Like you said, you don't need it to be super fast. Well, speaking of repurposing hardware, L, you've still been doing some hardware hacking, right? I have. I'm God, it has been so much fun. Like if you are not into it, just just jump in for a little bit. It is the best way to kind of have just a creative view that Though it's technical, it's not sitting behind the keyboard all the time. It's hands-on, and it intrigues your mind, but it's just so different from sitting behind a command line. For example, um, I came up with these little Christmas trees where we just soldered a bunch of lights into them, and it's me and my kids. So this was quite interesting, teaching kids how to solder, but it can be done. It's not that difficult. And then we you know, we had a functional little tree and then we used the little Arduino to be able to try to program the lights. And I say try because our success was limited, <laughs> but so that it could, you know, turn on a certain color or blink a certain color or change colors on a certain amount of time. It was just a really fun experience. Um, I talked about my crown that I was wanting to program and I finally got that going as well. So it's just something that I can show people. I'm like, I did this. I created this. I programmed this. I'm not going to be walking around. Hey, guys, look at my bash script. This is awesome. So come this December, you're going to have one of those badass Christmas display things where it's got like the music and it does a whole scene and all that stuff, right? Uh, are, are we going to see some viral videos? 
Maybe this is where I can offer the disclaimer that hardware hacking can be very, very expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it can be relatively cheap as well. Have you found that when you're out and about, you see examples of essentially hardware hack stuff where it might be, for example, um, there's a shop that I go in where they have some e-paper displays that talk about the beer or whatever's in that fridge. And, And I find myself thinking, I bet there's an Arduino or something controlling that. Growing up, we used to have a saying that's kind of like country engineered. And it always meant, you know, just different things where you turned, I don't know, a chair into a dog water bowl or something. But more and more, I'm seeing this country engineering when it comes to tech. It's kind of fun because once you've done some of this, you know what you're looking for. So what projects do you have on the horizon? I'm still doing one of my blinky badges. Um, It's just a lot harder because there are just these little minuscule pieces that I'm having to hold with tweezers. And if you don't do it just right, you kind of melt the part. But it's been fun because you can see with that that hardware hacking has levels. Like there are little bitty badges that my kids have done. And there are bigger badges that have challenged me. And now I'm kind of into the intermediate badges that I'm really working on not only my technical skills, but kind of my motor skills. And eventually, I mean, there are some just amazing projects like the Hardware Hacking Mirror and just some amazing projects out there that I hope to get to one day. So I have a question for you, Joe, and and don't get mad. (laughs) But I want to know, are you still kind of anti-using the cloud or did you give in and kind of embrace the new technology? (laughs) I've never been anti the cloud. I don't think that's fair. I have cloud servers that do certain things, but I just default to on-premises. I don't know if you can call it on-premises if it's in your flat, but you know, if, if I'm going to run anything, I'll try and run it on my own network first. And the cloud is only really for stuff that needs to be up 24-7 and needs to have you know proper reliability. I, I still think there is very much a place for using the cloud, but I don't think my views have changed massively since we talked about it. All right, that's fair. I guess I was trolling a little bit. But (laughs) on that, I think that when it's in your own flat, that is the very definition of on-prem, by the way. Okay, cool. (laughs) It's it's nice to hear you say that, you know, you'd be willing to use the cloud. I think that a lot of people are just one or the other. And to hear somebody say, you know what, yeah, like I try to run as many things I can on hardware, but I know that there's a use case for the cloud and I'm willing to go to that when needed. It's a little refreshing. I think a hybrid approach is certainly something that a lot of people aim for because there are some services that are definitely better in the cloud, whether that's on a VPS or on a true like cloud service and, you know, inverted commas. But There are also definitely some things that are really beneficial to keep on-prem. Like I've been playing with Home Assistant lately, and that is very much an on-prem thing for me. And I also pair it with some stuff that happens in the cloud, like tying it to Google services, which isn't quite the same thing because I'm not hosting that myself, but you get the idea. I think the main difference between Joe and I's view is he defaults to hardware first. And it's funny, I I don't mean to always go to the cloud, but it just seems to be what's native to me because I'll need to, let's say, before one of our hops, I'll need to save files that I want for the next computer. I automatically upload them to the cloud. Like, I don't even consider grabbing a USB or a hard drive. "Eh, Just drag and drop, we're done. Well, I just (laughs) drag and drop to my NAS. I just put another hard drive in there. 
not long ago. And so I've got tons of space and I know that that's available on my network to any machine. So I just drag it and drop it onto there. And uh, then when I need it on the next machine, put it off there. You want to come over to my house and set up a NAS for me? <laughs> yeah, I could do the holiday to Texas in March. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do that. Let's. It's a live episode of Joe trying to teach Elle how to set this stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm I'm even lazier. I just installed the NextCloud desktop client in sync. Wait, wait, Drew, back it up. Isn't NextCloud the the cloud? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> well, but by your definition, since I host it on Metal in my house, it's on prem, right? It's an on-prem cloud. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's my private cloud. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the sales pitch that they have for it. All right, well, we'd better get out of here then. If you want to get all the future episodes, then you can go to choose slash subscribe, and there's ways to get them there. And choose linux.show slash contact if you want to get in touch with us. And if you want to find us on Twitter, I'm at Drew of Doom. I'm L underscore O underscore punk at L O punk. And I'm at Joe Rissington. We'll be back in two weeks. Bye.